If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at GermaniaPod. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 2.4, Jesus People. Around 30 AD, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on the orders of Pontius Pilate. With the prophet dead, everyone would certainly move on, and he'd surely be forgotten within a few months. Didn't he only have like a dozen close followers anyway? But those 12 followers were a tenacious bunch and continued to spread the words of their teacher, seeking out new converts. It would take about 300 years, but this small group eventually became the foundation for the official religion of the Roman Empire and has continued to influence the world for 2,000 years. So, why did the cult of Jesus Christ survive and eventually thrive? From the words of Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian associated with the Roman Flavian dynasty, we hear how Christians became well-known in the world. Quote, Now there rose about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with gladness. He carried away with him many of the Jews and also many of the Greeks. He is called the Christ, and after Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, his first adherents did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, the divine prophets having foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of those called Christians after him is not extinct to this day. It's important to note that for at least the first twenty to thirty years after Christ's death, these followers did not see themselves as a separate religion from Judaism. In the collection of works from the Westar Christianity Seminar, After Jesus, Before Christianity, they use the term Jesus people to refer to these early congregations, which I think is a fair way to think of the faith. To all my Jewish listeners out there, if you ever need to refer dismissively to Christianity, I think Jesus people is definitely a phrase you should consider. As in, why does everyone at that table have dirt on their foreheads? Oh, you know how those Jesus people are. They don't know how to use a washcloth. We have previously covered some of the different Jewish sects that were popular in the first century AD. In The Story of Christianity, Justo Gonzalez highlights that despite their differences, two fundamental beliefs across all of the sects were ethical monotheism and eschatological hope. Ethical monotheism requires not just the belief in and proper worship of the one true God, but also proper relationships between human beings within that framework. Honoring God with the whole of your life should impact your relationship with all other people, though exactly how it should impact those relationships has been a source of much disagreement. The scatological hope is messianic hope, the belief that one day God would intervene on earth to restore the nation of Israel and bring a kingdom of peace and justice, where all God's promises would be fulfilled. As with ethical monotheism, this belief is left open to interpretation the proper behavior of the adherents. 
Would God act in their own time, independent of any human behavior? Should believers take up arms to speed the coming of the Messiah? What would fighting to bring about the kingdom of God even look like? So these early Jesus peoples saw their role initially as spreading Jesus' teachings to their fellow Jews, with the focus on the fact that by his resurrection, Jesus was shown to be the Messiah, who would bring God's kingdom to earth, fulfilling God's promises to the Jews. As Paul is quoted as saying in Acts chapter 28, verse 20, It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Jesus and his teachings grew up in the regions of Judea and Galilee that were controlled by the heirs of Herod the Great. The region had long served as an important trade route between Mediterranean territories in Africa and Europe and Asia Minor, and had been fiercely contested by many groups of people. As previously noted, between the 6th century BC and 1st century AD, The territory had been ruled by empires based out of Babylon, Macedonia, Egypt, Persia, and Rome. This meant that by the time of the death of Jesus, in addition to the community of Jews based in Jerusalem, there was already a great diaspora across the Mediterranean and Middle East. Since the time of Alexander the Great and his conquests from the eastern Mediterranean to India, Greek influence enjoyed a place of prominence across the region. As we discussed in the first two episodes of this season, the Jews in Judea had spent the two centuries since the revolt of the Maccabees confronting the influence of Hellenization in their community. However, this was less of a concern for the Jews living within the diaspora across the region. Living as a minority community, arguments about the appropriateness of accepting Greek influence were more theoretical than practical for them they were forced to accept and adapt to Greek culture, including the Greek language that was the lingua franca of the region. As a result, the Jewish community in Alexandria had created a Greek translation of the Torah that the early Christians would utilize in their proselytizing to the Gentiles. The text was known as the Septuagint, as legend held that 70 scholars individually translated the Torah into Greek. Once they were all finished and compared their work, they found that their translations were all identical, legitimizing the work as guided by God. This Greek translation was adopted by the early Jesus groups to help in converting the Gentiles who needed to be educated in the Jewish faith. It is from this translation that Christianity eventually took its name, as Christus was the Greek word for Messiah, or anointed one. The Roman policies toward the religions of conquered people tended towards the tolerant, particularly during the time of the Caesars. Obviously, over time, there were ebbs and flows to this toleration, as some Roman officials saw Eastern mystery religions generally, and the monotheism of Judaism and Christianity in particular, as threats to the security of the nation and submission to imperial authority. But the establishment of Jewish communities around the Roman world in the first century AD was important to the initial spread of the teachings of Jesus, as the original focus was on the spread as a sect of Judaism more than a splinter from it. As it spread, it came into conflict most often with the Pharisees, another sect that was focused on making religious teachings relevant to the lives of everyday people. From the story of early Christianity, quote, 
A great deal of the friction between Christians and Pharisees was due to the similarity of their views rather than their difference. Moving among the common people, Jesus and his followers had more opportunities to rub shoulders with the Pharisees than with the Sadducees. Unquote. The Sadducees were still the more conservative group, however, and they held power over the Sanhedrin. Initially, the Jesus peoples were more likely to face hostility from the Sanhedrin than they were from any Roman officials. The Romans frequently served as protectors of the Jesus groups, as we see in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about the words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on the synagogue leader and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. So, for the first several decades, the conflict was mainly one of different sects within Judaism trying to win adherents. Many Jews at this point believed that the reason why they had lost their independence to the Roman Empire was that the people were no longer showing sufficient fidelity to the faith of their forefathers. It was during this period that several of the earliest saints were martyred by the Sanhedrin and other Jewish authorities in Judea and Galilee, and it was during this time that some of the earliest writings of Christian religious figures were made against the Pharisees and Sadducees, writings that when stripped of their proper historical context caused major problems, to say the least, for the Jewish people in their future dealings with Christians. The conflict between the Jesus people and mainstream Judaism is seen in the decree from Emperor Claudius in 51 AD banning all Jews from the city of Rome. According to the historian Suetonius, the Jews were expelled because of disorderly conduct caused because of Christus. It was around this time period that the first council of Christ's disciples had to come together in Jerusalem to address some of the initial controversies of the faith. Most critically, who are these teachings for? Christ's word spoke of the renewal of the covenant with God, so did that mean the covenant between God and his chosen people, or should they speak to a community beyond? The two major figures during this period are St. Peter and St. Paul. Peter was crucial to preaching to Jewish communities, starting during the first Pentecost after the crucifixion of Christ. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday celebrated 50 days after Passover, commemorating the giving of the Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai. In the Christian faith, this Pentecost after Jesus' death represents the Holy Spirit descending upon the apostles and other disciples of Christ and inspiring their mission to spread the good news. At this moment, Peter spoke to the assembled, calling them to be baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah, so that they might receive the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the heavenly kingdom. He explained this through Jewish prophecies from the Old Testament, that 
Jesus had fulfilled. At this time, the major focus was not on Jesus dying for your sins, but on Jesus' resurrection, which proved that he was the Messiah. 3,000 persons were baptized that day, and it is here that Peter becomes the rock on whom the church in Jerusalem was founded. These first followers quickly became known to the community, focused on caring for the poor and sick, with the power of the Holy Spirit reflected in the entire congregation. Turning now to St. Paul, Philip Schaff, in his eight-volume history of the Christian church, called Paul, quote, the apostle of the Gentiles who decided the victory of Christianity as a universal religion, who labored more, both in word and deed, than all his colleagues, and who stands out in lonely grandeur, the most remarkable and influential character in history, unquote. For someone chronicling the Christian faith to proclaim someone other than Jesus as the most remarkable and influential character in history seems quite bold to me, but we'll let it stand. Paul was born Saul in the city of Tarsus, a wealthy Hellenized trading city in modern Turkey, the son of a Jewish family with Roman citizenship. He studied Greek literature and received a Jewish education from a well-known Pharisee rabbi in Jerusalem, meaning that he combined the three critical cultures of his age for the work that he was to do, Jewish, Greek, and Roman. Famously, Saul was a great persecutor of the early Jesus peoples as a strict adherent of Pharisee teaching and a man of strong faith in the religion of his forefathers. He saw Jesus as a false messiah, rightfully executed for his crimes. This changed around 40 AD when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. At this point, Paul went from the strongest persecutor of Jesus' people to the strongest promoter of Jesus as Messiah. After visiting Jerusalem and meeting with Peter around 44 AD, Paul embarked on his first mission to the Gentiles. In our last episode, I referred to the council held in Jerusalem in 50 AD is the first ecumenical council, but that is not accurate. The ecumenical councils focused on solving disputes of belief within the church, beginning with the council called in 325 in Nicaea to deal with the subject of next week's episode. This apostolic council focused on bringing together the leaders of the early Jesus people to determine to what extent followers of Christ needed to follow the laws of the Torah. The initial Jesus peoples were Jewish, and as such, they saw the faith within the broader context of Jewish tradition and the covenant with God. The newer Gentile converts, however, were coming to the faith without the same context, and into a Roman world that now prohibited many Jewish customs from being practiced by non-Jews. The major issue that now needed to be addressed was in the renewal of the covenant with God and the practice of circumcision. On the one hand, there was the perspective of Peter, that circumcision was critical to the ancient beliefs and practices of Judaism. On the other hand, there was the perspective of Paul, that it was a practice that was totally foreign to the Gentiles who were now adopting the faith. It was at this point that I think we see the true break between Judaism and Christianity. 
the laws of the Torah are no longer central to the practice of the faith. The old sign of the covenant between God and man has now ended. The new covenant is created in the blood of Jesus. You can also see the shift in audience in the writings of the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew, known as the Evangelist of Israel, takes the time to trace Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham as a way of showing the continuity of his teachings to the covenant between God and his chosen people. On the other hand, the Gospel of Luke, the Evangelist of the Greeks, traces Jesus' ancestry back to Adam, the first man, shows the connection of Jesus and his teachings to all of mankind. So now that the faith was being spread to the Gentiles, who were those people that joined? Famously, the early church appealed to the outcasts of society. It was not the religion of the aristocrats or the army. It was the religion of slaves and women. Slaves found the story of a spiritual kingdom in which all men are brothers very appealing. For women who did not accept the bounds placed on them in the patriarchal Roman world, they could find a new community within this faith. Many of the early stories of Christianity highlight the role that women played in the overall leadership of the church, including the story that we will end our episode with in just a moment. If the role of women in the early church is a subject that interests you, I again would recommend the collection of essays from the Westar Christianity Seminar, which goes into much more detail on this topic. Now, while the early church was not necessarily legal, it did not face too much opposition from the Roman authorities until the 60s AD, following the Great Fire of Rome during the reign of Nero. It is not known for sure how the fire started, but it burned for 10 days and damaged 10 of the 14 sections of the city. Three sections were destroyed entirely. While Nero organized relief efforts and worked to rebuild the city, he could not avoid rumors that he had somehow been responsible for the fire as an excuse to rebuild the city in his own image. From the writings of Tacitus, we have an account of how Nero sought to shift blame onto a convenient scapegoat. Quote, but all human efforts did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of their report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illuminations when daylight had expired." Unquote. 
It was during this period of persecution that both Peter and Paul were martyred. Fortunately for the Jesus people, Nero was declared an enemy of the state by the Senate just a few years later and committed suicide to avoid being taken prisoner. Over the next 40 years, the level of persecution faced by the early Christians would vary depending on the temperament of the Roman emperor. Paranoid and unpopular emperors would usually turn up the persecution, while more secure emperors would leave them alone. This would begin to shift during the reign of the emperor Trajan. In 111 AD, Gaius Plinius Cassilius Secundus, better known as Pliny the Younger, was named the Roman governor of Bithynia. His uncle, Pliny the Elder, was a well-regarded general and philosopher who served the emperor Vespasian, and the younger Pliny was able to use these connections to secure a good education and then prominent government postings, in which he seems to have performed admirably. Now, Pliny the Younger is not well known today so much for his accomplishments, but rather because a large volume of correspondence survives, with 247 of his letters that he sent to the Emperor Trajan, the historian Tacitus, and many other prominent Romans. These letters contribute a great deal to the modern understanding of how Roman administration worked in the 1st and 2nd centuries and one area that the Romans had to deal with was what to do with the followers of Christus. Pliny's time as governor of Bithynia was the first time he encountered Christians in such large numbers, as it was still more of an Eastern religion. The religion was still technically illegal, and someone in the city sent Pliny a list anonymously providing the names of known Christians. Pliny struggled to determine the best course of action. In researching the Christians, he learned that they gathered before dawn to sing songs to Christ and to join an oath not to commit theft, murder, adultery, or other sins. They had previously gathered for a common meal, but discontinued this practice in response to Roman prohibition of secret meetings. Notably, as part of Pliny's investigation, he apprehended and tortured two female slaves who were known as big promoters of the religion. In his correspondence with Trajan, neither man seemed surprised that it was female slaves who were the ones knowledgeable about the religion. Pliny wrote to Trajan to ask for advice. By the letter of the law, the Jesus people were being sacrilegious, not so much for their worship of Christus, but in their refusal to worship any other gods and the deified emperors. Pliny's initial instinct was to bring the accused before him and give them a chance to prove their innocence by making proper Roman religious sacrifices. Those who refused and proclaimed their faith would be given three chances to recant before being executed, more for their obstinacy than anything else. But still, in their daily lives, these people harmed no one, and it seemed like a strange use of administrative resources. The response that Pliny received from Trajan became the default treatment of the Christian people in Roman lands for nearly two centuries, until the persecutions of Diocletian and then the religious reforms of Constantine. 
Trajan's response seemed to seek a middle path. On the one hand, the nature of the Christian's crime was not something the state needed to waste money in seeking out in an effort to bring them to justice. And any anonymous accusations should be disregarded as unworthy of this age, as using them would set a bad legal precedent. However, if someone was accused publicly, they should have to account for themselves and be given a chance to recant and worship the proper Roman gods, at which point they could go free. But if someone was accused in public of worshiping Christus and would not deny it, they were to be punished as prescribed by law. In some ways, this seems like an elegant solution to the problem of maintaining imperial authority. The early Christians weren't really harming anyone else in their day-to-day -day practices, so actively pursuing them or accepting anonymous tips to go after them seemed like a waste of resources that would only make the rest of the people feel pity towards them. But the religion of the Romans was tied up into beliefs about the national security of the empire, so by refusing to worship the proper gods and show proper respect to the emperors, it made it important to punish the Christians if they would not deny the accusation. Now, I'm no fancy legal scholar, but it seems like it would be pretty easy to poke holes in this policy as a matter of justice. Someone who was a legal scholar was the Christian legal scholar Tertullian, writing in North Africa a century later. Quote, What a necessarily confused sentence. It refuses to seek them out, as if they were innocent, and orders that they be punished as if they were guilty. It pardons, yet it is cruel. It ignores, and yet punishes. Why do you circumvent your own censure? If you condemn, why do you not inquire? And if you do not inquire, why do you not also absolve? Unquote. Really, at the end of the day, the Christians who were punished were not being punished for being Christian, they were being punished for their contempt for the Roman courts and Roman religious and social practices. And while it lacked any moral justice, it was politically stable enough to serve as the law for nearly 200 years. In our next episode, we will cover some more of the early controversies the Christian faith was forced to deal with, before introducing the man behind what has been referred to as the archetypical Christian heresy, as well as the faith that was first introduced to the people of Germania, Arius, the presbyter of Alexandria.